book of Exodus. We're going to be in this book uh, for the spring leading up to the summer. We'll take a break during the summer, but uh, this morning we're picking up uh, with our third sermon in this book, and we're going to pick up our, our reading in uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus 1. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the end of 1 and then half of chapter 2. Now, it's, it's easy to see God's hand uh, in the amazing things that we see in this book. Uh, even if you're not familiar maybe with the Bible, maybe you're not a Christian, you, you haven't spent much time in the Bible, you've surely heard the story of Exodus, um, you've seen movies, you've heard, heard the different stories of the parting of the sea, and it's easy to think of God's great acts of uh, wonder and miraculous uh, works of, of deliverance that he has done for his people when, when we think about books like this. It's easy to see God at work in the plagues and the parting of waters. Uh, when we read the whole of Scripture, it's easy to see God at work in things like the resurrection of Jesus. Or even in our own stories, many of us have witnessed and experienced God's great hand at work in our lives. We, we know one another's stories, how some of us have had this incredible experience, this transformational experience of the gospel, and our lives have radically been changed from death to life. We look at our lives and we know that apart from God, this could have never happened. These amazing, amazing things that God has done in history and in us. It's easy to see God's hand at work in the, the miraculous and the amazing. But what about the mundane? What about the day-to-day -day things of life? What about those decisions that we make that seem so inconsequential, that seem so minor, that seem so small, those thoughts, those conversations that we have? What, what about those situations? Is God concerned with those? Is he only involved in the amazing or the miraculous? What about that casual conversation? What about that small decision? Is God intimately involved in those things? Well, as Christians, we believe that God is involved in those small decisions, in those minor acts. We often refer to it as providence. That God is at work in the lives of his people, not just for the miraculous, but also for the mundane. Not just for the great, but also for the small. That he is actively involved in our lives. And in this passage this morning, we see God's hand of providence everywhere. So let's go ahead and begin our reading in verse 22 of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no more, could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a number of summers ago, uh, two summers ago to be exact, I was in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, I was on a mission trip with a group from my church. I was uh, in Merida, Mexico, and then we went to a tiny little village called Siticum, uh, just in the Yucatan. It was in the middle of July, and so it was brutally hot. <laughs> Why we decided to go to Mexico in July, I will never know, but, but that's where we found ourselves doing hard labor. Uh, we were uh, creating this um, pad, really. It was just this big concrete slab. Uh, we were pouring concrete and mixing it and, and digging and lugging gravel and dumping it all down so that they would have this place that they could have outdoor worship services and they could invite their community and play basketball. And when it rained and the, the ground was wet, they could still meet on this slab. And so that's what we were doing all morning long. We were doing this awful, awful work in the brutal heat. Um, well, it was amazing, actually. You know, even though it was hard work, it was pretty fun work because uh, in the midst of this, we heard these incredible stories of what God was doing in this little village of Sitikum. You see, there were these men that we were being introduced to who just years before had, been, had, had really kind of ignored their family, had, had abdicated any responsibility they had to their children and their wives. They, they were looked upon as, as vagrants in the community. And yet through the ministry of this particular church and this group of Christians, they heard the gospel and their lives changed. And these men were now taking up their responsibility as husbands and fathers. And they were now treated as, as men of respect in the community and leaders in the church. These great and amazing things that were taking place. I loved hearing those stories. To be reminded of how God works in these amazing ways. Well, on the third day that we were there, we were lugging the gravel we were uh, mixing the cement. We were doing it by hand. And I looked over and I saw our team leader. He was on the phone. And he was clearly talking to someone from the States because he was speaking English. And, and uh, after a couple minutes, he got my eye, he got my attention, called me over and handed me the phone. And on the other end was uh, a man in the States, a friend of mine named Ryan. And Ryan was telling me that his son, his 12-year-old son who was fighting cancer, his lung had collapsed, and they weren't sure how much longer he was going to live. Brian was calling because Ryan's eldest daughter, Becca, Caleb's older sister, was on the trip, and she needed to get home as soon as possible because they didn't know if Caleb would make it through the week. And so she asked me, he asked me, would I bring her home? Would I leave the trip early and take her back to the States? And of course, I said yes. And so we grab Becca and we, we start to hurry over to the houses. We're staying. We take a quick shower. We grab our possessions. We head to the airport to get to Houston. You see, our flight was Merida to Houston to St. Louis. And, and so we're just running. We're scrambling, trying to make it back in time. 
Well, we land in Houston. We had no problems in Merida, no problems in Mexico. We land in Houston, and, and I look at my watch, and we have one hour to make our connecting flight to St. Louis. I'm thinking, one hour? No problem, right? I mean, to, to get across from one terminal to the other, this isn't going to be a big deal. I know it's a big airport, but surely one hour is plenty of time. But this was an international flight. And I hadn't flown internationally for some time, and so I forgot all the different steps you have to go through when you go through an international flight. So we go to the customs line, right? And we're at George Bush Intercontinental Airport, right? And the customs line, it didn't look that bad, big until I saw it worming, right? And it was enormous. And we're standing in line, and I'm wondering, are we ever going to make it through? As I'm about to ask one of the agents how long it should take, I, I hear her say to someone who has the same question, when making an international connection, you should give yourself three to four hours. We had one. My heart sunk. And I started praying silently. I actually prayed, God, you parted waters you can move this plane. You can move this line. You can slow the plane up. Let us get home. And so we weave our way through. We make it through customs. We make it through customs, but then we had passport check, right? And this is another long line, and I'm still praying, God, please move this line. We make it through passport. But Becca had to check her bag because it was too big, and so, so we had to go get her bag and move it over to domestic, and it had to be rechecked, and the guy scans it, and he looks to see what time our flight is supposed to take off, and his face contorts in such a way that tells us we will never make it. He just goes, just run, run. And so we do. We start hauling it, right? I'm, I'm sprinting, thinking maybe we're going to make it, right? We've made it through customs, passport check. We've checked her bag, but we still have one more thing, and that's security. Now, now the Roanoke Airport security, <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's like the best security line in probably the world, right? It's like, it's like two minutes, right? We know the person by name because they live down the street, right? Like, it, it's so easy. Don't think of that, <laughs> right? We're, we're at George Bush Intercontinental Houston Airport, and we are standing in security, and there are four lines closed and two lines open. And so we're weaving through, and I'm praying, Lord, let her get home. And we come nearing to, to uh, where the two lines are closed. And, and the TSA agent, she stops the line. She slows it down. And she, she starts to open up the other two lanes. Instead of having to wait in line for the other four, she opens up the other two. And there's people in front of us who try to cut in front of us and get in line. And she goes, uh -uh, no, 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 and pushes them aside and points at us and waves us through. The line opened just at the right time. We make it through security. I look at my watch. We have 20 minutes to get from like Terminal E to Terminal A. So we we're running, we're hauling, and we, we hop on the train. And there's nothing to do but wait. We're going on the train, and I'm praying. We're, run, we're going around the bend, and we can look out the window, and we can see the gate. I look at my watch. We have three minutes before the flight's supposed to take off. We can see the gate, and the plane is still there. I don't know if the door is closed, though. Is it about to pull away? Once the door is closed, they're not opening it for anybody. And so the, the train comes to a stop. The door is open, and we go sprinting down the escalator and through the terminal, and we're running up to the gate, and the agent looks up, and she sees us coming towards her, 
And she smiles and says, you made it. We go and we plop sweaty and smelly in our seats on this flight to St. Louis. The flight flight left 15 minutes late. 15 minutes. There were no engine trouble. They weren't waiting for us. It just happened to leave 15 minutes, not hours, minutes, just in time. And Becca was able to make it back and see her brother at just the right time. He, he passed away less than 24 hours later. But she was with him. She made it back. Now, now in all those things, the speeding up of a line, the, the grace of the TSA agent to open up two new lines as we were coming, the, the plane that waited 15 extra minute, minutes for no apparent reason, all these different circumstances, and that isn't even all of it. I, I just cut it down to save time. All these different ways. Now, maybe you're sitting there and going, isn't that, isn't that really cool how that just happened to work together? What wonderful coincidences Maybe you're wondering that. Maybe that's how you would analyze that situation. Or maybe a better way of understanding it is that God was actually weaving together each one of those circumstances to ensure that this girl would make it back. That God was actually weaving them together, that he was speeding up a line, and he was delaying a plane, and he was opening up lines that were closed before. God's hand was at work. His hand of providence was moving even in these little, insignificant, seemingly inconsequential details. See, this is what God was doing. He's not just the God of the monumental, he's the God of the minute. He's not just the God who is concerned with the great and the grand, but he's also the God who is concerned with the details. He is the mover of mountains and the speeder upper of lines and the holder of plains and the director of river currents. He is intimately involved in seemingly inconsequential details of our lives, and he's fitting them together for his purpose. He was doing it on that day, and he was doing it in this passage. You see, that's what this passage is showing us. That God is the one who is at work and he is fitting this story together to preserve for his people a deliverer. Now, I'll be honest with you, when we're in the midst of it, it's, it's hard to see those things, isn't it? I mean, all those little details, all those little conversations, all those little events, they, they don't feel like this beautiful tapestry. They feel like this, this jumbled up mess. Right, of lines and of, of yarn, of string, of, of different directions and conversations that, that have no purpose and have no connection. When we're in the midst of it, we can't see it. And yet, and yet, because of passages like this, we can have confidence and trust that even though in the midst of it, we don't know how God is fitting it together, He is. He is. In this passage, He isn't holding planes and speeding up lines. He's using the persecuted, and he's turning the heart of his enemy, and he's using river currents and places of death to bring about a deliverer. 
He's showing that he's behind the small decisions and the ironical occasions and the providential actions. God is fitting together his story to bring about a deliverer for his people. Let's see how he does that. If that's what he's doing, let's see how he does it. The first way that we see him doing this is by using the persecuted to protect. The persecuted become protectors. We see it in verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, so Pharaoh, remember, he's been trying to limit Israel's power, right? Israel's uh, armed force, their future army, by killing off these boys. He tried to enslave them. He tries to kill them. All of these things haven't been going so well. They've been thwarted at every turn. And so now he's going to call all of Egypt to cast these boys into the river. He's going to call all of Egypt to, to enter into this. And this is the historical circumstance that Moses is born into. So think about this. As soon as Moses takes his first breath of life, his life is now in jeopardy. His life is in danger. This is the the situation that his parents have brought him into. What's a mother to do? We actually don't know very much about his parents. Later we'll find out their names in chapters to come. And, and their names aren't these, like, great biblical names. You know, some of the names they talk about, like, warrior and justice. And we know that that's what they're going to be like. They're, their names are just kind of normal. They're like, God be praised. That's a good name. <laughs> but it doesn't tell us anything about them. They're just normal, everyday Hebrew people. They're from the tribe of Levi, but at this point in redemptive history, the tribe of Levi is just another tribe. It's not until later that they become the tribe of the priest, but, but for now, it's just nothing unique. They're just really normal. Really normal, nondescript Hebrew couple. All that we know about them is that they're this man and woman who are married, who had this boy, and they are being persecuted. They're part of a people who is being put down by Pharaoh. So what is a mother to do? I mean, imagine the situation. It's not the mothers casting their sons into the river. It's the Egyptians. Consider the evil that is being perpetrated, that a child is born, and within a day or two, there could be someone banging open the door, kicking it in, and grabbing that child from its mother's arms and casting it into the river. In the fear and the horror, Moses' mother won't have anything to do with it. She won't have anything to do with it. Though her people are being persecuted and her son is in danger, she's going to hide him and protect him. That's what we see in verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. This reminds me of the story of Corrie Tim Boom. Some of you are maybe familiar with who that is. She was a Dutch girl who was living in Nazi-occupied Holland. Corey and her sister and father lived in the home above her father's watch shop. And on the top floor, tucked away uh, in one of the bedrooms, was, was a wall. And to the naked eye, you couldn't see what this wall was hiding. But there was a room on the other side of this wall where they were hiding Jewish men and women. They were hiding them from the Nazis. She recounts this story in the book called The Hiding Place. 
And there's a story in this book where this man who knows that uh, Corey and her father are engaged in this this resistance against the Nazis comes with a, a Jewish woman and her child and says, would you take them in? Not just the mother, but also her child. And the, the man says, I, I, I know that this is actually of greater danger, right? Because children, you know, they, they make noise when you don't want them to. And you can't stop them from crying when they're going to cry. And so this is going to put you in greater danger. Don't, actually, don't worry about it. This is too much to ask of you. And her, her father actually takes the child in her, his arms and he says, you say we could lose our lives for this child? I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. And so they took them in and they hid them in this room. And when the Nazis came and searched their shop and their home, they knew that any squeak, any cry, Any noise could lead them to being found out, and those that were in hiding would certainly be put to death, but those who were protecting them would be as well. That's what's happening here in this passage. In the stress and the worry for those three months, every cry trying to muffle his sounds, every coup afraid that that maybe an Egyptian was outside the door and would come barging in. But she wouldn't just hand her child over. No, you see, God was using the persecuted to become the protectors. And after three months, when she couldn't conceal him anymore, she set him in a basket and put him in the Nile, not knowing where he would end up. And now God isn't going to just use the persecuted as protectors. He's now going to use the empathy of his enemy. The basket is in the reeds in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter is walking along. She just happens to be walking along. She sees the basket and opens it up, and she says, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, she would have known, certainly, that this was a Hebrew because Moses, as she opens the basket and looks, most commentators think that she would have witnessed and seen the mark of the covenant. Moses would have been circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Jewish boy. And there's no hiding that. And so she, she would have seen this and known exactly who was in here. This is a Hebrew child, and she would have known what she's supposed to do, right? She, she can't claim ignorance. She's not just an everyday Egyptian. She's Pharaoh's daughter. She knows his edict. She knows his law. She should have taken this Hebrew child and cast him into the river. That is what she should have done. But her heart doesn't fill with murder, Instead, her heart fills with empathy, with pity. That's what we're told. It is with pity that she looks upon this child. Now think about this. Pharaoh had given an order to enslave the Hebrews, but that didn't keep them down. They kept multiplying all the more. And so Pharaoh ordered the midwives, kill these boys, but But that didn't stop them because the midwives disobeyed. And so now he says to all of Egypt, you guys are going to do my dirty work. Throw these boys into the water. Kill them. And it is his daughter who does the very disobedience. The very disobedient act. It is his daughter. She doesn't just not cast him into the river. She goes even further. She draws him out and sends him back home to his mother to be nursed and to be raised until she is weaned with the very protection of Pharaoh's household. 
I mean, think about that. This story is just flooded with irony. It is flooded with irony. Moses returns to his mother with the stamp of protection from Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh is trying to destroy this people to kill these boys, and yet there is one who is cared for in his own home. That this boy is going to be raised right under Pharaoh's nose. The one that he should be most afraid of is going to be trained in his household. In Acts chapter 6, when uh, Stephen is preaching, uh, right before he is martyred, he alludes back to this story of Moses, and he says that Moses would be trained in all the ways of Egypt. And he would be brought up with the best education that Egypt could have. Right in Pharaoh's own home. God was turning his enemy's heart. He was using the pity that welled up in her heart to protect this one who would be the deliverer. I mean, think about it. Pharaoh thought he was getting the upper hand on Israel, on God's people, and yet Moses was going to be raised and protected and trained in Pharaoh's heart, in Pharaoh's house. This one who would lead Israel out of Egypt was protected by Pharaoh's own daughter. The irony. God is preserving Moses' life, not just through his people, but also through the empathy of his enemy. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because God is going to also use this place of death to bring a deliverer. Now, I want us to go back and think about Moses' mother. She knows she can't hide the boy anymore, that he will be found out. And so she makes this little basket, this little boat, waterproofs it, and sticks it in the reeds. She sticks it in the Nile. Okay, the Nile River. This isn't uh, the lazy river at Splash Mountain. Okay, this isn't like a, a slow-moving current for a Saturday afternoon on the lake. Like, that, that's not what this is. This is the Nile. Okay, she stuck him in the reeds, so surely she's hoping he won't get brought out into the river. But if he does, there is great danger. There is great danger because the Nile's 4,200 miles long. And it's a violent river. And at its most narrow, it's 1,100 feet wide. At its most narrow. It averages 26 to 36 feet in, de in depth. And even if he doesn't get out into the middle of the river, there are fish-eating eagles that are flying overhead. And there are crocodiles on the riverbank. This is a place of great danger. I mean, think about it. As she sets her three-month-old in the water, think about the anxiety and fear. Like, think about the anxiety we fear about an infant being in six inches of bathtub water, and we are standing right there. <laughs> and she's putting him in the River Nile. Because she knew to keep him, the boy would be found and killed. And so she places him in the water, the very place where the boys were to be cast into to their death. She puts him in this place in the hopes that his life would be spared. Of all the places that the basket could come to rest, the portion of the river that Pharaoh's daughter happens to be. In the irony again, that this place that was to be a place of death would actually be the place of life, the place of preservation the place of rescue for God's deliverer. Moses's or Pharaoh's daughter in verse 10 says that she called him Moses because I drew him out of the water. 
I drew him out of the water. You see, the, the word Moses in the Hebrew sounds like the word to draw out. I don't, I don't normally uh, speak Hebrew in passages, in sermons, but, but the word Moses is Moshe. And the word to draw out in the Hebrew is Mashah. That this one who would be a deliverer is drawn out. He is rescued out of the water. Later, he would be the one who would actually draw God's people out of this place of death. Not of a river, but out of Egypt. And he would take them and lead them into this place of life. God's very presence. God is using the place of death to bring a deliverer. To bring life. A number of years ago, um, in Andover, Ohio, it rained for 10 straight days. Morning and evening. Ten straight days it rained. And on one morning after the rain had stopped, he had finished a day or two beforehand, Tom O'Connell left his home. He, had, um, he, he was on his way to work, and his two little girls followed behind him. They were going to play in the soggy grass with their beach ball. And so uh, Tom gets in his car, and he, he drives past the, the, the ditch that, that took the running water that was filled with the rushing water that, that took it to the main culvert of the city. He, he drove past it because it, it ran right past his house. He waved to his daughters as they played in the soggy grass, and he drove off to work. Jessica, the two-year-old, and her older sister are playing with this beach ball, and their mom is watching from the window. And her mom takes her eyes away from the girls playing in the yard for just a second, and when she looks out again, the two-year-old is nowhere to be found. She can't see her. The beach ball had gone away. It had rolled away, and the two-year-old went to find it. Well, about the same time that Jessica's mom was searching madly for her daughter, their neighbor, a door or two down, Ray Blankenship, was looking out his front window as well. And he looked out his window just in the nick of time to see this two-year-old being taken down the water. Without thinking... He goes running out his door because he knew that to be swept away in this drainage ditch, that, that she was in great danger because just a few yards away flowed the North Main Street culvert, which was 30 feet long, and it was filled to the top with water. If the little girl made it all the way, she would die. And so he comes barreling out his door, and he's racing alongside the ditch. He's trying to get in front of her, and finally he does, and he throws himself into the rushing water, knowing that he has never learned how to swim. And he goes down and sinks under the water and pushes off on the bottom, and as he does so, he grabs hold of the little girl's arm and clutches her to his chest, holding her head above the water. As they floated down, they got about 10 feet from the culvert. He too would perish if they made it. And as they're floating and they get about 10 feet, he, he reaches over and he finds a rock protruding, protruding out from the side and he grabs hold of it and pulls himself to the rock and he's holding on as the water is pushing against him and he thought, if only I can hold until someone can come with help. This place that would be their death came the place of rescue. He did hold on. 
and help did come. And they were taken out of the water and taken to the hospital and they were treated for, for near drowning and just shock. This place that should have brought their death was a place where deliverance was found. That's what happened to Moses. He should have died in the river. He should have died in the river, but the river was not the place of death. It was actually the place of deliverance. I want you to see something else in verse 3. That word basket, there is only one other place in the entire Bible where this Hebrew word is used for basket. It's actually a section of scripture in Genesis. It's from Genesis 6 through 9. Do do you all know what story is told in Genesis 6 through 9? It's the story of Noah. It's the story of Noah. You remember the story of Noah. Noah was this righteous man. He walked on the earth. He walked with God. And he was a righteous man at a time of great wickedness and evil in the earth. And so God looked upon the earth and he decided, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to bring judgment. And he was going to do it through water. But Noah and his family would be delivered. They would be brought out of judgment and brought out of destruction through what? A basket. An ark. You see, the word for ark is the same word that is used here in in verse 3 for Moses' basket. That just as Noah was brought through the water and was delivered through the ark, so too is Moses brought through the water and delivered out through this basket. You see, God, God is doing the incredible. He's doing the amazing. He is actually bringing Noah through this water of death. He is bringing him through this ark. And so too with Moses, he is bringing him through this water of death in a vessel of salvation. This three-month-old child who cannot deliver himself, he is delivered. The deliverer is delivered by God. That is what God is doing. He is taking him out of the place of death and drawing him out so that he would be the deliverer of his people. This is what God did with Noah, and it's what he did with Moses, and it's what he did with Christ. It's what he did with Jesus. It wasn't out of a river that he was brought. It was out of the tomb, the abode of the dead. That is where Christ was laid, his his lungs that no longer had breath, his body that was now dead, his lifeless life that was placed into the tomb, this place of death, and yet that is not where he remained. He was drawn out. He was raised up. And in his resurrection, he defeated death, not just for himself, but also for us because he is our deliverer. This is what God has done. He did it with Noah, and he did it with Moses, and he did it with Christ so that we would be delivered. God is weaving together all these different events, all these different occurrences, all these things that that make no sense in of themselves. I mean, think about it. The hiding of Moses, placing him in an ark to go down a river, the washing up near Pharaoh's daughter, the drawing him out, the protecting him. All of these events in of themselves seem insignificant. They all seem like a great coincidence. But together they tell us of God's providential working to bring forth his deliverer. 
that in all these things, God is at work. He is in the midst of the monumental and the mundane, the great and the small, so that we, his people, can trust him in all these ways. It's not just for Israel to bring them out of bondage. It's for us as well. I mean, think about it. God fit together a series of events to bring forth Christ's birth at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right place, to bring us out of the place of death so that he would deliver us. And so we can trust him. We can trust him even in those times when it seems like just a a big mess, when we can't see how they all fit together. Y'all have seen the front of a tapestry before, but have you ever looked on the back of it? I mean, it is crazy. It's, it's string and yarn and colors going everywhere in every direction. If that's all you saw, you would have no idea what the artist was doing because it makes absolutely no sense. You, you can't see how the blue and the orange and, and this yarn going this way and this yarn going that way all fit together to make this beautiful picture. And that's how our lives feel most of the time. And I imagine that that's what Moses' mother was thinking when she laid him in the river and when she protected him, and when Pharaoh's daughter drew him up out of the water, they didn't know how all of this was working. God doesn't promise that we will know. He doesn't promise that even in the midst of this mess, when we look at it, that that we'll one day even see. He doesn't promise it in this lifetime or the next, but what he does tell us is that we can trust him. That even though we may not see the beautiful picture on the other side, even though we may not know how he is working it all together, that we can trust him. That in the great and the small, in the mess and the seemingly incoherent, we can trust our God, the God of providence, the God who is raising up a deliverer. God, we do thank you that we can trust you. We do thank you that we can put our hope and our faith in you, the one who is at work in the great and the small, the one who is at work in the magnificent and the mundane. God, we do pray that you would deepen our trust, that you would deepen our hope, that we would know that you are the one who is working, even when we are unsure of how it is that you are working that your hand can be trusted, that you are good. Help us, Father, to believe this. Help us to trust in you, our God and King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together,